0: lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with the fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you on my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you, your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult. For the mouths of liars will be stopped. As you may know, I enjoy uh, hiking and birding, bird watching, as some people say. And one of my favorite places to go is a place called the Little Big Econ State Forest. It's a beautiful place that's uh, nearby where I live. And so I go there once or twice, well, really two to four times a month uh, and enjoy exploring the areas, looking at the trails um, and uh, seeing what kind of wildlife might be there. And I remember about six years ago, I think it was about six years ago, 2016, somewhere in that neighborhood, I decided that I wanted to go and hike out to the St. John's River. Um, there's a trail that kind of follows the um, uh, Econ River that goes out to the St. John's River. And I wanted to see what kinds of shorebirds it might be um, migrating up and down or well, up the uh, St. John's River in June. And so uh, I decided to hike out there. It's about a ten-mile hike to go from the trailhead out to the um, out to the Saint John's River, explore the Saint John's River, and come back. So it's June, and I start my hike. And about five minutes into walking, I realize I forgot my water. I left it in the car, and I thought, "Eh, I'll be fine." So I keep on hiking, and I walk out. It's about three to miles or so to get through all of the trees out into the flats, the floodplain of the St. Johns River. And I felt fine walking out there because I was in, under the cover of trees, but then I walk out to the St. Johns River, I'm in the flats where there's absolutely no trees, no shade, and it's getting hotter and hotter, and I am um, not noticing how hot I'm becoming because I'm enjoying myself uh, looking at all the birds. And I saw, like, okay, you can call me a nerd now. I saw short billed dowagers uh, migrating north uh, to their breeding grounds, and that was exciting for me. And I was seeing all these things that I was hoping to see, um, and not thinking about the fact that I was becoming progressively more thirsty and progressively more hot until I remember it, it just kind of hit me like a ton of bricks. I was like, oh my goodness, I'm hot. And I'm a mile away from shade, and then I'm another three miles away from my car, and I'm miserable. I didn't even realize it. And so, and I'm thinking, okay, should I go try this other place first? And it's like, no, no, I need to go back. I need, I'm in trouble because I'm dehydrated, and I need to um, get back to the car. So I start walking back to the car, and by the time I get to the shade of the first trees, I'm really worried because I've stopped sweating. And I'm really worried that I'm going to be in trouble, in real trouble. And uh, I was so exhausted that every time I hit shade, I had to stop and rest. And I kept thinking, this isn't good because the longer I rest, the longer I am without water. I need water. And um, I was really, really afraid for that last two miles or so that I was going to be in serious trouble. And I remember sitting, I can't move because I'm exhausted, and yet um, the longer I sit here, the more thirsty I'm going to become. And as I remember those experiences and read Psalm 63, um, this is the kind of situation that David appears to have found himself in Psalm 63, where he's in a dry and weary land where there is no water. This psalm is set in the life of David when he was in the wilderness, and we don't know exactly when this was, but uh, it, where in his, when in his life, but we know that, um, well, it's likely that this was when he was fleeing from Absalom, when Absalom was taking or attempting to take the kingdom from him. And in 2 Samuel chapter 15 and 16, we're told that David fled into the desert uh, and but he sent his priest back to the temple with the ark of God. And this is what he says. David says, take the ark of God back to the city. If I find favor in the Lord's eyes, he will bring me back and let me see his dwelling place again. But if he says, I am not pleased with you, then I am ready. Let him do to me whatever seems good to him. And as I read those words, I am I'm just kind of amazed at his confidence and in his faith that no matter what happens to David, he's going to trust in the goodness and in the love of God. Maybe God would bring him back to Jerusalem and allow him to be restored to his kingdom, um, and but maybe not. Maybe Absalom would continue to uh, wrest his kingdom from him, and maybe David would die in the wilderness. Either way, David was going to trust in the providence of God. And this is the same confidence that we see expressed in Psalm 63 when David says that he's in a dry and weary place or dry and weary land where there is no water, thirsting and longing for God with both his body and his soul. And this wasn't just a physical uh, longing for, for water. It was a spiritual longing as well. This is body and soul together, the, the body mirroring the spirit, if you will. He's starving both physically and spiritually. He wants water, but he also needs the presence of God. His whole being longs for something more than what can be experienced. In his presence. And in this dry and weary land, he longs for water, but he also longs to be with God and in his presence in the temple. And that longing, that thirst, reminds him of when he had previously found God's presence in the sanctuary. There he had seen God's glory and his power. And from that grew the conviction that God's love is greater than life itself and so he pledges that he's going to praise God no matter what as long as he lives but then he also expresses hope and confidence that one day he will be satisfied with the richest affair and regardless of what happens in his life he can trust that God's goodness will prevail in his spirit. And it is that hope that gives him a new perspective on his present situation. His enemies were lying about him. His enemies were seeking to take his life. But he wasn't going to be captivated by his fear of them, of his enemies, because he was already captivated by the love of God for him. And the hope that David had in a coming day when he would um, be satisfied with fat and rich food, with the richest of fare, is a hope that we have begun to realize in the person of Jesus Christ. We have seen the beginning of what David hoped for in Jesus Christ because Jesus has come and entered into this broken world and he has purchased for us a new heavens and a new earth. And one day he will return and he will gather us together At the wedding supper of the Lamb, and we will dine with him, and he will provide for us, and we will be his people, and he will be our God. David suffered in the desert, likely for his own unfaithfulness, for taking someone else's wife, for killing her husband, for using his power to benefit himself. But Jesus suffered on the cross because of our sin, because of our faithfulness, faithlessness, and because of his faithfulness to redeem for himself a bride that was unfaithful to him. And so because of the cross, we can know and we can have confidence that our desert experiences will end, the suffering will cease. One day we will dine with the richest of foods at the wedding supper of the Lamb, and he promises to nourish us in the present time as he leads us through our current experiences into a new heavens and a new earth. And until then, until that day, we will always have experiences of desert. We will never be able to escape um, this on this side of heaven. There will always be times when God feels distant, when God feels absent. When we suffer in the miseries of this life and wonder how God will lead us through. And at times I feel the church, and when I say the church here, I don't mean UPC. I mean the church in general. I feel the church sometimes has failed to address this reality of what Christians experience in their daily lives. That there are times when we go through experiences of desert. There are times when we feel like God is absent or God is distant and we treat people on the um, level of their, really their surface experiences rather than their deeper longings. I mean, can you imagine? I made it back to my car, by the way. I, uh, I had some water in the car and I drank down the water and I realized after that that I didn't even bring enough water even if I had remembered it. And so I uh, went to the nearest gas station and got the biggest thing of water that they sold but can you imagine if there was a gas station attendant there guarding the water and said you were stupid why did you do that you need to repent you need to say you're sorry and after you say you're sorry and after you listen to my lecture about why what you did was so wrong then you can have your water and that would be awful right? No one would do that. That's a very uncaring thing to do. You give somebody the water and while they're drinking the water, then you lecture them about what they were doing. You do that you get it in the right order. Um, but the reality is that's in many ways the way that we act as a church. We deal with people on the level of their behavior rather than on the level of their thirst. I uh, have a friend who led the a um, celebrate recovery ministry in Baltimore, Maryland at the church that I pastored up there, was a pastor there. And uh, he was in the mall back in the days when we walked around malls. He was in the mall with his, with his friends, or with his family, and he sees this guy walking by with a t-shirt, and the t-shirt was one of these custom-made t-shirts, and it says on the top in big letters, everybody tells me to stop drinking. And then underneath of it, it said, but nobody asks me about my thirst. And he saw that and walked by, and then he has a lot more guts than I do. He stopped and he said, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to this guy. And he walked back, he found that man, and he said, I want to ask you about your thirst. And uh, I, I'll do it now, but if you want, you can come to a Celebrate Recovery meeting, and, and I'll ask you there. And, and I promise I won't lecture about your drinking until you tell me about your thirst. And that man came to celebrate recovery. And I don't know how his story ended. I have no idea how his story ended. But I just love the fact that my friend reached out to him and asked him about his thirst. Because the guy who had the, wore, the, wore the shirt was bold enough to be able to even say it on his t-shirt. And that's really where the church needs to interact with people. To interact with each other on the level of our thirst. Not so much what are we doing and why is it wrong, but what is it that's driving us to do the things that we do? What is it that makes us do what we do? What, why is it that we don't do what we should do and do do what we shouldn't do? What is it that drives us? This is what reveals our thirst. This is what reveals Our need of Christ and where the gospel can minister to us on a deeper level than just our behavior. And I think about the last year and all that's happened in the last year, the one thing that strikes me the most um, beyond just the reality of the pandemic is the conflict that has happened, the culture wars that we've experienced, not just out in the culture, but between the culture and the church, and even to some extent within the church. I mean, I wasn't alive during the civil rights movement, or I was, but Martin Luther King was killed four years before I was born. So I missed a lot of uh, what is in the history books. But I think what we're going through now is in many ways similar, even if maybe not quite as extreme. Issues of race and gender, politics, climate change, the environment, the pandemic, masks, vaccines, you name it, we're gonna fight about it. But the reality is, what these things reveal about us is a thirst. A thirst that can't be quenched by social structures. A thirst that can't be quenched by government. A thirst that cannot be quenched by any human institution. It's a thirst that only can be met by Christ. That He is the source of water, He is the source of nourishment for this lost and broken world. And what the desert does is it reveals to us our thirst. And that thirst can drive us to Jesus. And that is where the beauty of the gospel is. That's where we can see hope. The same kind of hope that drove David so many years ago. And I love the way he said it. His words are striking. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me we can't cling to God unless he upholds us but I doubt any of us will look back on this life and say we made it through ourselves all of us will look back on this life and we will see the hand of God in it all leading us through our struggles leading us through sustaining us and nourishing us along the way today a unique thing about today I think uh, that might be a little bit different from previous times in our lives, is that if any of us were to tell the story of our last year and the struggles that we experienced, all of us would be touched by the same thing, by the coronavirus and the way that it's affected us. All of us would probably have that as being part of our story over the last year. We have so much in common in our struggles, and yet good conversations are harder to come by. But they're, they're not impossible, They are still possible. We can still reach out. We can still listen to each other's stories, and we can still empathize. And this passage points us to reality of God's beauty in the midst of our lives when it seems like our lives are a disaster area, when we can see the beauty of God and the hope of the gospel in the struggles of our everyday lives. Henry Nouwen, who is one of my favorite writers, says it this way in his book, The Wounded Healer. He says, a Christian community is therefore a healing community, not because wounds are cured and pains are alleviated, but because wounds and pains become openings or occasions for a new vision. Mutual confession then becomes a mutual deepening of hope. A sharing and sharing weakness becomes a reminder for one and all of the coming strength. This is what David realized. He had a new vision in the midst of his thirst as he was reminded of God's uh, care for him in the past, the, the power and the glory that he had seen in the temple in the past, but also a hope for a future that one day God would restore him and he would dine in the richest of fare. He had hope in a coming strength in the midst of, his, of the desert experiences because of God's work in his life. And we hate the, de- the, the, uh, de- the deprivations that come to us in the desert experiences, and rightly so. But God does things for us in the midst of these experiences. The desert is an essential aspect of the Christian life. Because there, we are reminded that this age is not all that there is. There is an age to come. There is a new heavens and a new earth, and this world simply cannot satisfy in and of itself. And that thirst that we experience is a good thirst because it longs, it causes us to long for where Christ is leading us as a people. And it deepens our hope and gives us the perspective that we need to be able to travel through this life into the new heavens and new earth. And he's not left us alone. He's given us each other. And he's given us his spirit so that we can care for each other, so that we can comfort each other, so that we can love and empathize, and so that we can support and even cherish each other until he returns. And this is really what the world around us needs to see, to see in us and, and for them. A watching world can see that we, are, that, that we have this hope for something that is coming that will be, that will transcend anything that our, that this world itself can offer. And it's missing in so many of our, um, the public face that the church gives to the world. I'm reading a memoir right now by an African, African-American man who's a scientist, and he's also a birder, uh, and he's also a spiritual person, uh, and his the the memoir is leading me. I haven't finished the book yet. It's leading me into uh, where he has reconciled his training in science and um, and nature with his spirituality. But in the in the telling of the memoir, and I'm I'm actually listening to this memoir while I while I run uh, in the mornings and in the afternoons. Um, he's telling the story of his life and his upbringing. And he grew up in a very conservative, fundamentalist, uh, King James-only type church uh, in South Carolina. And as uh, he remembers back into his childhood, this is the way he described his experiences in church. He, uh, his grandmother convinced him to confess his faith, and he got baptized in church. And the big thing that he remembers uh, when he got baptized is that uh, they dunked him under and he saw tadpoles in the water, uh, and then they pull him back up. But from then on, this is, this is how he describes his experience in church since being baptized. He said, I would I would have to sit and listen to someone, tell me how evil I was, and how terrible punishment was in store for me if I didn't repent." My five-second swim with the tadpoles, had, that is his baptism, had been just an entry fee into salvation. Satan would follow me for the rest of my life, tempting me with things I'd better run away from or else. I owed God a debt of obedience and guilt that I could never repay. And he continued to talk about his experiences, and a couple pages later, he summarized it this, this way. As an African-American man, This was an old-time religion, salvation at the hands of a blue-eyed God who wielded the Bible like a whip. And as I'm I'm running, I'm trying to, you know, get my time for the day. I'm listening to him share this, and um, my heart is breaking for him that the gospel that I believe in, the gospel that we believe in, uh, Jesus that came to free us from slavery, from sin, and from bondage, he got the opposite message. And I don't know what the church was saying. All I know is the experience that he had and the way he experienced it as a child, but his experiences were real, and they created real hurt and real pain and real thirst, and I don't know what happens to him. I don't know if he comes back to the church. I don't know if he comes back to the Christian faith. I don't know if his, I know he comes back to some form of spirituality, but I don't know yet if it's a Christian spirituality. I want to find out, but the reality is Whatever happens with him, the reality is this is the kinds of stories that we need to hear because we need to know the message that we share isn't always the message that people hear. And what we say and what people hear us say are sometimes two different things. And when we say that we believe in a gospel that gives us hope for the richest affair, we need to be sure that the messaging that we give is consistent with the gospel we believe. We need to be really thinking about the messaging that we offer as a church and the gospel we provide as a a church and the actions that accompany what we say to make sure that when we say that the gospel gives freedom, that we offer that freedom in the life of Of the church because Jesus has purchased a new heavens and a new earth to usher us into the wedding supper of the Lamb and if nothing else the thirst that we have is a thirst that there is something more something beyond what this world can offer in and of itself something beyond what human institutions can provide and the hope and the longing in the world today it's palpable in the struggles that we are experiencing, in the struggles that um, that um, uh, Drew Lanham, the author of the book, had um, experienced, we need to give more to a watching world. We can't make the desert go away, but we can provide a foretaste of the coming kingdom. In, a way, in the way that we live in the world today, in, not, in what we say and in what we do, in the way that we offer our lives in the context of sharing the gospel. And when we do this to fellow believers, we call it nurture or we call it discipleship. When we do this with unbelievers, we call it evangelism. But it's, it's the same thing. It's us listening well, hearing each other's thirsts, our need for the gospel, sharing our lives with other people's lives, speaking into their lives the words of the gospel with love and acceptance. This is what the gospel is supposed to be all about. There's a book written a few years ago um, called The Shape of Church to Come. And one of the authors is an Australian. And he tells the difference between um, caring for sheep in Australia versus the United States. In the United States, when we care for sheep, we have um, farms and we... We um, fence in our farm, farms with fences to keep the sheep in and keep the wolves out. Keep the things that we want in, in. Keep the things we want out, out. That's what we do. Um, in Australia, he says that's not practical in many of our farms. We can't build fences. We can't. There are, our uh, lands are too large, and we, uh, we can't keep the fences repaired. And so uh, we can't do that. He says what we, what we do in Australia is we sink a well. And then... Um, We only bring water to the sheep at the well. We only feed them at the well. And the one thing the sheep learn is the well is the source of life and they won't stray too far away from it. And I thought that was such a beautiful metaphor. What we can easily fall into in the church is building fences where we say you belong with us and you don't. You belong with us and you don't because of something about you. When the gospel says, come and join us because of something about Christ, because of who Christ is for you. This is what the gospel offers to a watching world. This is what satisfies us with the richest affair. Let me challenge you to consider What is your thirst? I'm talking about your behavior. Your behavior is a symptom of your thirst. What is it that makes you want to do what you do or not do? What's driving the behavior? And where do you need Christ to minister to you in the midst of that thirst? when we come to grips with our own stories and what drives us, we can also share in the hope of the gospel because the gospel is ministering to us and then we have hope to give to those around us where we can empathize and hear them share their thirst and not respond in judgment but respond with empathy and the offer, the sincere offer of the gospel because we have the spirit now We have the gospel now. We have a foretaste of the coming kingdom now that we can share with the watching world. And this is what we celebrate when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, a very real foretaste of the wedding supper of the Lamb where Christ comes to be with us spiritually, to host this table in anticipation of the day when he will return and we will dine with him again. We feed on him by faith now. When we will feed with him, when we will dine with him in the flesh in the future. This is the Lord's table where Jesus pledges to sustain us in this journey. It is not an empty ritual that we perform just to remember Christ. It's the spirit nourishing us in this sacrament. And all who are weary and who recognize their need of Jesus can find nourishment from the gospel, from Jesus, from his spirit here in this table who come with contrite heart. And so if you are a member of the church in good standing, any church in good standing in which this gospel is preached, Feel free to come to this table. And in anticipation of this meal, let us confess the gospel that we believe by reciting the gospel in the form of the Apostles' Creed that the church has recited for thousands of years. Let's read it together I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his Son who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, was born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From here he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. As you prepare to come to the table, let me let you know, you can see the signs better than I can, but if I can remember correctly, the ones closest to me here are wine. Did I get that right? And the ones on, up uh, here are juice, and then the outer ones on the far ends are juice with uh, not unleavened bread, gluten-free bread, yes, those are on the outside. So uh, let me invite you to come forward and take the elements, and then we will will, uh, celebrate them together.